0: My name is David Scott. I am the student ministry pastor, like Kim said, here at Stonebridge. Um, I'm also leading our first church plant. Um, like she mentioned, the name of the plant is Highlands. Uh, today is not an ad for Highlands, just so you know. Um, we're going we're to look at the scripture. There's some things that we're going to look at in the scripture, and especially some application points that are, um, that are connected to the heart of, of what we hope to do at Highlands. Um, but if you want the ad for Highlands, Um, You have a few options. One is after the service, I will be next door, uh, and we can talk there. Uh, You can email me uh, at highlandsmarietta at gmail.com, and you don't even have to write anything except in the subject line. If you just say more info, uh, I can follow up with you there if that appeals to you. Um, And then finally, on March 13th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., that's a Wednesday night, we're going to be at the Marietta Local, which is up on the corner of this block um, up the street, Uh, and we're going to have dinner. Uh, We will uh, share. You'll learn about what we're going to do with kids, kind of zero to fifth grade. You'll learn about what we're going to do with middle schoolers and high schoolers. You'll learn about uh, the vision for the overall ministry and have a chance to ask your questions in all of those areas, and then hopefully uh, we'll get a little time to kind of discuss and pray with each other. So that's March 13th from 630 to 830 p.m., uh, if you want to let us know you're coming, that would be helpful uh, for one reason is that we're going to have food and that'll help us understand those numbers. The second reason is that we're going to have childcare available and we'd like to be able to know, uh, to predict for those numbers. And you can let us know. You can email, again, HighlandsMarietta at gmail. Um, and you can do that right now. Like I don't get, I work with middle schoolers and high schoolers. So if you're on your phone the whole time I talk, I just assume that you're doing something important. Um, <laughs> and so, so embrace that. Uh, and um, or you can quick plug for the Stonebridge newsletter. You can sign up for the Stonebridge newsletter and you can RSVP to a link on the Stonebridge newsletter. Or you can read the Stonebridge newsletter if you're signed up. We see the statistics and they're not great. Um, so, but, uh, but if you want to read it and you want to RSVP, that'll be in the newsletter leading up to March 13th. So... That's Highlands. Uh, today, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 8. Uh, we, If not, it's going to come up on the screen in a few minutes. So we've been going through the book of John for a while. We actually just finished up a lengthy section um, of a conversation between Jesus and for the most part, some religious officials. Um, and it takes place during uh, this thing called the, the Feast of Booths or the Festival um, of Booths. And in it, There's a lot of dialogue back and forth between Jesus and other people where Jesus is explaining who he is and his connection to God. And he's continually misunderstood. And they're continually taking it in the wrong direction. It creates a lot of tension uh, between he and uh, these religious scholars and officials and Pharisees. So much so that at the end of chapter 8, they're trying to take up stones and kill him. Um, but actually today we're going to step back into the beginning of chapter 8 to a story that we skipped over. And uh, the reason we skipped over it is, I'm going to try, try to do this part quickly. If you, if you want more information about this, you are more than glad to research it or you, we can talk if you want to. <laughs> um, but there, the reason we skipped over this is there's, there's some level of dispute as to where this story belongs in the scripture Most of your Bibles um, will have it bracketed, or there'll be a footnote that says the earliest manuscripts don't include these verses. And that might lead you to think that this might be just a story that was added later to prove a point. It doesn't really count as the Bible. But most scholars who believe the biblical account is at all historical don't tend to take that position. There's a reason um, that it's still in our Bibles and indicated as such. Uh, These folks believe that the language, the flow, the specifics mentioned Um, make it make it most likely um, a part um, of the biblical account some people put it a little earlier in John chapter 7 some people put it a little later in John some people think the language is reflective of Luke and so they they put it in Luke again we're not gonna do a deep dive into that Um, but kind of the two takeaways for that for us today one is that um, it, it has all the marks of an authentic experience in the ministry of Jesus um, so though, even though it might be out of place or some people think it might be out of place, it stands as good in terms of knowledge and wisdom and building um, on the life and the person of Jesus. The second thing is uh, that the reason that a lot of people think that it was, it was misplaced or sort of kind of shoved off to a corner for a good amount of time is that the early church, uh, especially the early Catholic church, put a lot of emphasis on penance. And so this is a story of kind of immediate forgiveness and restoration, and that was difficult for them. Um, there was also a pretty high value uh, placed on penance for sexual sin, and this is a, a passage that deals with sexual sin. And so, so there's a thought. It, it's not guaranteed. It's, it's mostly these guys trying to figure out why things uh, would have happened the way they happened. But there's a, there's a thought that this was a, a passage that kind of challenged uh, the church of the day. And, and the, so the second takeaway that I think that we could really sort of bracket this whole conversation in, is that, um, is that Jesus is challenging, is, is that uh, the, if, if we want to seriously embrace the person of Jesus, um, it's going to challenge us, it's going to make us uncomfortable, um, and it's going to cause shifts in everybody's life, uh, whether we consider ourselves uh, church or, or not church. Um, so let's jump in. End of chapter 7, technically, we're in verse 53, um, but goes right into chapter 8. This is what it says. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, go and from now on, excuse me, sin no more. So, um, this, is, this, this would have been, for the people hearing it, a, a very weird and intense and uncomfortable passage. Um, one of the reasons that some manuscripts feel like this is the right spot uh, for this passage is because it fits partly the narrative of what's been going on in chapters 7 and chapters 8. And here's what's happening in those chapters is that Religious officials are challenging and accusing Jesus, and that's the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that these men want to challenge, and they want to accuse Jesus. Specifically, they want to accuse Jesus about breaking God's law. Uh, if, if you've been here any, uh, a few weeks back, we talked about how Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and this was a big deal, and uh, the religious authorities came to him, and they said, you can't do that because you're breaking the law of the Sabbath, and there's this... Uh, conversation where Jesus says, listen, can't you do good on the Sabbath? And, and so these guys essentially right here are trying to take it up a notch when it comes to the law and they think, okay, well, maybe we can't catch him on the Sabbath, but we could catch him on sexual sin. They're like, that's different, right? And, and so what they do is they go and they find this woman in the act of committing adultery. We'll talk about that for, in a minute. And, and they bring her to Jesus as kind of a tool Right to be used for their argument, they drag her up where the temple is and they sort of put her in the midst. It says, and they asked Jesus, Should we judge her by the law of Moses? And what they're referring to here is Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, this is what Moses told the people as God's law. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Uh, but this is, that's not exactly, that first verse is not exactly uh, what people think that that's not the challenge here. The, verse 23 says, if there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. And so basically what they think is happening here is there's an engaged woman and, and she's, been, she's been caught in the act of adultery. And now they've, they've brought her out and they're referring to this law and they're saying, Jesus, are you gonna uphold the law, right? Are you going to sort of bow to our control or are you a liar? But there are some problems just from the jump that, that Jesus knew because Jesus knew the scriptures. And, and this is what Jesus makes... Make space for the circumstances of these men hurt their case. Uh, The first, you you can probably see pretty easily that in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says that you're supposed to bring both people, right? And they've only brought one person. So really, it begs the question, where is the guy, right? So they've already violated the law. They're already in violation of what they're trying to catch Jesus in, right? So problem number one. Problem number two is that later on in Deuteronomy, you see that there's a pretty high level um, of eyewitness that is needed in order to convict someone of this crime that would lead to death by stoning. And, and the reason that, that there's a high level needed is that uh, particularly um, in Old Testament society and even in New Testament society, um, women, they, they could just be treated really poorly. And, um, and, so, and so in order to protect women, God had set things in place so that they, they, couldn't, they couldn't be abused. And so you had to have two eyewitnesses to catch someone in adultery. Now, I, I would never want to be that eyewitness. Can you imagine what that would be like and what that would mean, right? We don't have to go too far into that. None of us wants to, probably. But what this meant is you had to have two people who actually saw the act taking place. And so for that to be the case, for, it, it probably wasn't that people stumbled upon this, right? It's probably not very likely that you would accidentally stumble upon somebody who was engaged with somebody who they were not engaged to in this activity, knowing the consequences. So you probably had prior knowledge. You probably at least saw the beginnings before the action took place. And you probably had to decide to do nothing about it. Right? So there's a sense in here where, where the situation, it does not look good for these guys. The, the third problem here is that this isn't the only option at this point. Is that you might remember uh, from Christmas how you hear the story of Mary and Joseph, right? And, and Joseph actually thinks Mary's guilty of, the, of breaking this law. So when Mary says, I'm pregnant, Joseph's initial reaction is probably anybody's initial reaction, which is she's guilty, I'm engaged to this woman, and, and she's been with another man. And so Joseph doesn't drag her out to be stoned. What does Joseph decide to do? It says because he's a righteous man, because he's somebody with integrity, he decides to divorce her quietly. So this wasn't even the only option in this situation, and it wasn't the option that was being chosen by people of integrity. One is that they choose stoning over allowing whoever the man is that this woman's engaged to to divorce her. And two is that they don't do it quietly at all. Like, they, they have no concern for this woman, which is a violation of a number of things God cares about. This, this is a powerful story because it paints a, a, a pretty strong picture of, of harsh religious people who have neglected their responsibility to care for somebody's soul. Right? To these men, this Woman is a disposable tool. They don't care about her. There's not even a mention of them caring anything about her in the passage. They don't care about what she's done, and they don't care about what's going to happen to her. They care about being right. They care about winning an argument, and they care so much about winning an argument that her life has become a tool to corner Jesus in their theology so that he either has to condemn her sacrifice his commitment to grace or he has to let her go and sacrifice his commitment to god's law and jesus knows that all of this is happening right we we hear throughout the scriptures that jesus knows what's in men's minds and their hearts and so it's interesting is that Jesus does something really weird, right? He just bends down and starts writing in the dirt. And there are a thousand rabbit trails that you could go on theologically to figure out what Jesus is writing about. I don't care about any of them today, but you're welcome to chase them down. We don't know. He bends down, he writes in the dirt. They're yelling at him, trying to get him to engage. He stands up, he says one thing right? He says, okay, fine. Let the person that feels like they have integrity before God in this situation, let them go first, right? Jesus looks at all of them and he, and he, and he slows down the issue. He slows down the situation. He, he pulls back and he says, you don't care about what happens to this woman because look at your hearts, right? You're clearly trying to simply manipulate a situation to win. So, so, so why don't you think about this? Why don't you think about what you're doing for a minute, right? The idea that he says, let the person without sin be the first to cast the first stone. A lot of times, like, we kind of go after that and we say, see, like, nobody's perfect. But that's not, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying. You're right, nobody's perfect. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, you're not even <laughs> doing this with integrity. And so so let's see. Let's see who's living right before God in the way that you're using this woman to win an argument. You didn't bring the guy, right? If you have two witnesses, their integrity is probably in question. right? There's all kinds of problems here. And, and the most incredible thing in this passage is, is that something happens that doesn't happen in either, in any of the engagements before or after. Is that these guys make the right decision. They actually do the right thing. And, and I think it's interesting, I, I just think it's interesting that this is the one engagement with the Pharisees from chapter seven through the end of chapter eight where Jesus really slows everything down. And he really creates the situation for them to do the right thing. Because this isn't just about Jesus saying who he is and and them coming after Jesus. This is about a person who has serious need. And so he slows them down and he says... You judge first, right? You judge first. There are so many violations in your approach that if you think about it for 10 seconds, if you think about it before you act in your anger and your pride and your arrogance, you'll realize that the ends doesn't justify the means. You'll realize that just because you're loud, just because you're powerful, or just because the other person is too, is too quiet or demure or afraid to talk back, that doesn't mean you're right. Just because you won against this lady. Right? Why, why, don't, why don't you look at who you are before God and judge, your, judge yourself before God and not before this woman? So they leave. And that's the first time Jesus looks at the woman. That's the first time in the passage that he talks to the woman because the woman is no longer a pawn in a game. She's a person who needs help. Jesus isn't there to display himself as awesome so everybody can see him. He's there to help the person. And so finally, he talks to the woman. And and the crazy thing about this is that the one that we just sang nobody can stand before is kneeling before the sinner, right? And he looks up at her and he stands up. And he asks her, he's the only one that had the right to condemn her. He's the only one that could look at the law and be like, yeah, you violated it. And he's the one who releases her. He's the one who says, I'm not gonna condemn you. But the other thing is, 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 he's probably the only one who could look at her and say, you know what, but this is not an ideal life, a life, of an adult, a life of adultery where you hide. It's not. And so he does. He looks at her and he says, stop. Stop sinning. He doesn't get super specific. He just says, go and stop sinning. He delivers her from death and into new life. He forgives her and he teaches her. So there's a ton of takeaways from here, and there's, there's all kinds of places you could go, and all of them I think are actually pretty important, and, and I'd encourage you to wrestle through this passage, but we don't have a ton of time, um, and, and so I'm really going to stick on, on one thing in particular, and that's this. Jesus demonstrates in this passage what John says about him in chapter 1, that he is 100% grace and 100% truth. The beginning of this gospel, John says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it's important to know that this is actually one of the things that makes Christianity fairly unique is that most religions uh, that believe in a God, one of those things has to win against the other one is that either God has to be nicer than he is a judge or God's, God has to be holy. And so he can't give grace. We've got to work To be good enough But but what the world honestly Really needs Is the Jesus Who meets with the woman caught in adultery The one who can say I don't condemn you Because we all deserve Condemnation In 1 John Chapter 1 John says this, he says if we say we have no sin We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us Like, we're all guilty, and we need the one who will look at us and say, not just a one, but the one who could condemn us to say, I don't. But then John goes on, and he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We also need the one who can give us life. We don't just need the one who can deliver us from death. We need the one who can give us life. We need 100% grace and 100% truth. And our problem is that we're just inclined to be in one ditch or the other. We are just inclined to love one side or the other. I hesitate to say this because I'm not going to explain it a lot. If you want to talk, talk afterwards. But did you know that, uh, that they say genetic traits help predict your voting patterns? I don't know if you knew that or not, but there are studies that have done, like the things that we think we choose, we don't necessarily choose. We kind of end up in ditches a lot based on our upbringing and some actually based on our genetics. And so that's not a condemnation. I'm not saying that like we need to try harder to be 100% grace and 100% truth. Here's what I'm going to say. We're never going to be it. We're always going to be in a ditch. And sometimes you're in different ditches depending on who you're with. With yourself, you're 100% grace. With your kids, you're 100% truth maybe. I don't know. With your parents, you're 100% truth. And with your friends, you're 100% grace. Right? We just sort of like end up in these ditches. Or maybe we're 80-20. Maybe we're not... 100 and zero but, but the bottom line is that we end up in these ditches and, and it's problematic because because these ditches won't set us free and they won't set the world around us free right grace without truth loves when Jesus says let the one without sin cast the first stone because it's a great moment It's a great recognition and a humbling of people that want to judge harshly. And so grace without truth says we should just love people, right? We should just love people. But what happens is that that people who fall in the ditch of grace without truth are, are, are just really uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus would say, go and sin no more. They're really uncomfortable with the fact that they would have to look at anybody and say, you should change your life. They're like, I don't want to do that. So it's not just the love of Jesus that drives you. It's, it's a personality trait. You either don't want to do it because you're afraid of, of being judged yourself. You're afraid of losing friends. You're afraid of being wrong. I don't know. Or, or you're, just, you're, you're just uncomfortable and you don't want to do what you don't want to do. Some people, it's, it's a genuine and a healthy fear of legalism and hypocrisy. Right? We are tired of that kind of church. We are tired of Christians who are just known by everything that they hate. God is love, right? And we proclaim these things, but the problem of getting in the ditch of grace without truth is that ultimately we become the permissive parent, and we make God the permissive parent. And this is what I mean. In high school, we had this guy, you had this guy, I'm sure the guy whose mom hosted all the parties, right? And like in high school, we all thought the same thing. Their mom is cool, and my mom is not. Right? And then we went to college, and that guy went to jail. <laughs> because mom was so permissive that there was nothing to build on. Right? We forget that Jesus is a rock that we're supposed to build our lives on. Jesus said, if you build your life on my words, right, then you'll stand. Then you'll have a place to stand. Right? So we can't, we can't land in the ditch of grace without truth. And the other ditch is truth without grace. And by the way, if you want to know what ditch you're in, you love it when I talk about the other ditch. That's how you know what ditch you're in. (laughs) So the other ditch is truth without grace, right? And that ditch loves, like always wants to bring it up. You know he said go and sin no more, right? Like that's that ditch, right? Like, you know, I know he said this, but he really, really, he really wanted this right? And we're, that's, that's the ditch of like, get your life right, man. That's the ditch that for some of you guys, uh, uh, the reason you hate that ditch is because you grew up in a church that didn't have air conditioning and had harder seats than we have here. And maybe it was south of here. I don't know. You know those kinds of places, right? Like, <laughs> But, you know, fire and brimstone, turn or burn, you know, that kind of thing, right? But that's the kind of get your life right ditch. And if you're a super disciplined person, you probably end up in this ditch a lot, right? And, and, and if you're in this ditch, you're uncomfortable with forgiveness without specific correction. You're, you kind of wish Jesus would have given this woman three steps, right? If you do this, this, and this, then you are my follower. Right? If you make sure that you complete these things, especially because it was a sexual sin, right? Because those are the big ones, we all know. Right? You're uncomfortable that Jesus doesn't get super specific. He just says, I'm not going to condemn you, so go and sin no more. And, and maybe you're uncomfortable because you fear that that we might relax the truth at the expense of acceptance. And that's an understandable fear. Right, that we might cheapen grace, that we might water down the gospel, people say. Right, but, but there's also another side to that ditch, and that's that we make God into the strict disciplinarian. Right? We make God the one who risks deserting the gospel and grabbing hold of behavior modification, and that's what Christianity becomes. It just becomes the new set of rules. It just becomes, yeah, 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 Jesus accepts you, forgives you, et but then you're supposed to go do these things, right? And, and the gospel, Jesus, the cross becomes a means to an end rather than the place that we find our hope and the place that we find our end. So how do we overcome the ditches? It's tough. I'm going to be honest. I don't know that any of us will ever 100% overcome our ditches but but the first thing is that we can be aware of them right we we can be pulled back and before we condemn others we can stop right that's the that's the big news that that Jesus says in this passage he slows the people down and he forces them to listen to more of the issue than they may have thought at first. We don't really value that in our culture. It's not hard to imagine dragging a person into the limelight because you want to make a point, thinking you have all the facts and not recognizing there are things you don't know, right? Like it's not hard to imagine that in our society, is it? I see it a lot. And and the first way that we can stay out of our ditches is is we can slow down, recognize that we would even end up in them, not be so quick to try to get to the end. And then in the midst of slowing down, we can learn to listen. James 1.19, James says this, he says, every person needs to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So I just want to unpack that just very quickly. First, we need to be quick to hear and not talking is not the same as hearing because sometimes you can be not talking and uh, somebody said this to me this week, you're just loading your next argument, right? You're just sort of positioning yourself to be right again, but we need to be quick to hear. Hear from God and hear from another perspective. The goal of our conversations needs to be wisdom, The way I do this is is when I do it well, is that when I sit down with people, this is what I call relational discipleship. It's one of the values of Highlands. When I sit down with people, I'm, I'm in a bad spot when I'm trying to be the hero or when I'm trying to answer the question. I'm in a great spot when I'm trying to listen to the person and listen to God. And so what I try to do is I just try to be quiet, hear what the person is saying, and then I'm asking God to speak to me at the same time. And then what I do, this is just kind of a simple practice, is I try to repeat what the person said to them. I do the classic, here's here's what I think you're saying. So that I know that I'm listening before I'm responding. The second thing we need to do is we need to be slow to speak. What we think we know, we might not know. What we think we know, we might not know. They did a study um, about 9-11, it was a 10 year study and they asked people to write down where they were and what their circumstances were a week after 9-11. They did it, I think a year after, three years, uh, five years and 10 years. And people's details changed every time. If I were to ask you like, what were you doing when, when the two towers were hit? You would think, I think, I'm like, I know exactly what I was doing, I know how I felt, I know who was there, I know. But They said, they would show people what they wrote a week after and they would be like, there's no way I wrote that. There's no way. That, that our, We think our memories are just like, I took an exact picture of what happened. And we think that what we know is everything. But, but it's important to know that what we think we know, we might not know. And so we need to be slow when we speak, even about ourselves. What you think you might know about yourself, you might not know. You may need to spend time listening to God before you start talking to yourself about yourself. And then the last thing is this, we need to be slow to anger because anger wants to win, but listening invites Jesus to transform. Anger always wants to win. This past weekend, my son was not listening to anything that I wanted him to do, and I was ready to win. By the end of the night, I was ready to win. And so I'd like, I, just, I just went after him, and I said, I said, you weren't listening, this, this, and this. And then he started to say things back to me, And then I realized, and this is a crucial moment if you're a parent and you have a 10-year-old son and you have my 10-year-old son, I realized as he started to say things back to me, oh my gosh, I'm wrong. And like, that's a crucial decision point because like I can still win because I'm bigger (laughs) and I can still win because I know more words and I have all the money and I own the house, (laughs) right? Or I can be embarrassed and look at my son and be like, I was wrong to my 10-year-old son. And I can be embarrassed and I can be humble, and I can be more embarrassed and humble when I have to go to his mom and say, oh, by the way, I was wrong, right? And I can lose. But there's something worse than being humbled or embarrassed, and there's something worse than losing, and that's winning when you're wrong, just because you were louder, or just because you hold the position of power, or just because the other person stopped talking. It's worse to win when you're wrong. Because you can miss out on 100% grace and 100% truth. And that's what we need more than we need to win. And that's what we need more than we need our side to win in the world. So we're going to pray. I'm going to get Bo back up and ask the people who are praying to come up. We're over, I'm sorry. Um, but I do want to share uh, just a couple of things for a response. First, we would love to pray for you if you're struggling to hear God. One of the reasons it's hard to listen is that maybe we feel like God's not talking, or maybe we feel like God talks to everybody, but he doesn't talk to us. So I just want to pray for you. If you're you're struggling to hear God about a relationship or about a situation, um, there are going to be people up here. Go ahead and come up if you're praying for people. Um, There are going to be some folks up here, and they would love to just pray for you about that. Uh, And the second thing is this, Um, are are you stuck in a ditch and specifically, are you stuck in a ditch about yourself? And and here's what I mean by that is that uh, some of us, like we get that God forgives us, but we haven't experienced the transformation of life that God gives the woman caught in adultery. And and we want to experience that. That's some of us. I'll bet more people in this room, because if you come to church uh, at the beginning of winter break, I'll bet more people in this room are in the other ditch, which is that you you probably beat yourself up a lot for the things you've done wrong. And you're working hard to be good enough for God, but you feel like you're running (laughs) and running and running. And you're not recognizing him as the one who who is kneeling down before you and who's saying, it's, it's okay. Like, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Yeah, what you do is wrong, and what you did was wrong. But, but the gospel's not a beginning piece so that you can run hard and become another person. The gospel is, is it. It is 100% grace, and it is 100% truth, and it is only in Jesus that you're gonna find what you need. It's not in trying harder this week because you heard a good sermon. And, and we would love to pray for you about that. You ready? All right, I'm going to pray, and if you need to go and grab your kids, you can do that. If you want to come talk about Highlands, um, I'll be next door. Um, but I would encourage you, if you're in either of one of those two areas, to come up and receive prayer. God, first, thank you that you are exactly what we need. And I, I just say I'm sorry when I make you less, so that I can win. And I pray for all of us today. God, that we would trust you enough to slow down and listen for ourselves and and for the world around us, God, that we might live by your grace and by your truth, in grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.